the third edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 22nd and 23rd of September 2020. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joining this podcast by Mark Sennett, the CEO of Western Business Media. Good morning, Mark. Morning, Brian. I'm well, thank you. Great to be back with you. And as normal, we start off with the news on this podcast, don't we? So what have you got in store for us? What's caught your eye this week? Good morning, Mark. Yes, well, the key, one of the key stories this week has been the government asking the Fire Industry Association to consult with its members in a bid to find out how they've been impacted by the pandemic. And the responses apparently will be um, helping to inform how government can work with the fire industry on mitigating the impacts of COVID-19. In essence, the FI has put together its survey by focusing squarely on practicing fire industry professionals, and they stress that the responses received will provide crucial insights that then enable the association to represent members' needs as effectively as possible going forward. I think the important thing here is the survey is going to be followed by a comprehensive report that will be published next month, and it covers multiple topics, all of them relevant to the rapidly changing business and workforce environment experienced by fire safety practitioners. The hope is that uh, the answers gathered will assist companies in beginning to plan for the future, which is obviously very important. Uh, the survey consists of around 30 questions. They'll take around 15 minutes to complete uh, for every respondent. And we would certainly urge pr- practitioners in the sector to take part. Now more than ever, I think, is really the time for them to make sure their voice is heard. The survey can be accessed on the FIA's website at www.fia.uk.com. Yeah, Brian, I mean, I've looked at the survey questions in there and one part that, uh, you know, I looked at is the financial impact uh, because, you know, obviously I I run our business here and this has been financially challenging for every business, SME or or bigger. And I speak to most of the key manufacturers in the fire sector um, and yeah, it's been difficult. You know, most of them are still getting a good number of orders, whether it be for fire detection systems, uh, fire doors, etc. But It's hard. Many of them are furloughed marketing staff or sales staff. It's challenging. And this FIA survey is really going to help Ian Moore, who's obviously the chief executive over there, and and the association, actually really give a good overview to the government of how this has impacted all of its members. So, yeah, it's a really useful survey, really important survey. And I think the positive, from my perspective, when I look at what's being done in, in the fire sector is many, many manufacturers are trying to carry on as much as they can, as much as normal, even in these difficult circumstances. They're still manufacturing and they're still trying to um, get orders in and, and are actually succeeding getting orders in. So, that's, so there is some positivity from this really difficult time, Brian. So- there is, Mark. Further to that as well, we've mentioned on the last podcast, in fact, it's worth checking out the online CPD training that's being uh, put out by the FI at the present time. Indeed, Chris Tilly, the FI's membership manager, told us that the feedback so far has been excellent for all the courses. Uh, it's a great way of improving people's knowledge and skills and also improving competency in the discipline of fire safety. And on that last note, we're talking to Stephen Adams later on from BAFE about that on this very podcast. Yep, Stephen will join us later on. And yeah, I've I've got a news story that we obviously covered on FSM. And as, as you know, all the latest news, you write it, Brian. It's on our website, which is fsmatters.com. The story that I wanted to go over was that there are pleas for increased fire safety funding from central government following a damning survey from leaseholders. So this is a story that you covered where, as we've covered on the podcast before, the government's one billion fund for cladding remediation 
covers a wider fire, wide variety of fire safety issues, but this survey is actually asking it to cover a wider um, topic of areas. So a survey by Housing, Communities and Local Government Committee and involved the input of leaseholders nationwide received 1,352 responses and has some quite interesting responses in there. 34% of respondents said there was missing or inadequate compartmentation in their blocks. 30% said combustible or missing insulation, which had been revealed to not being covered in the funding. 14% of the survey participants had issues with timber balconies and walkways. That is a age-old concern, timber frame buildings, which uh, the FBA in particular are passionate about uh, not being in existence timber frames. 5% had issues with adequate fire doors and 27% said the funding should be extended to cover all serious fire safety defects, like the list I've just gone through. Another finding was 70% of respondents still have dangerous cladding on their buildings and have yet to have it removed. So, yeah, I mean, it's there's a serious issue still to be, um, to be faced there. It's great the government have created this one billion cladding remediation fund, but as you can see from this survey, Brian, people want it to cover more and to go further because there's serious concerns that have been highlighted, whether it be fire doors, compartmentation, timber balconies. Yeah, a lot still to be covered. And I think, fair comment, to be honest, I think it, I think it should be extended to cover those things. I think also, Mark, it shows the importance of these fire safety risk assessments and who does that and how they do it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So... You know, a lot to digest there. Um, and actually, probably a good time to bring in our recurring guest right now. Warren Spencer is the managing director of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors and has prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than anybody else in the UK. So at this point, you know, we always encourage you guys to send in questions using the hashtag FSM podcast and we can get any legal questions asked direct to Warren. So... Without further ado, here's what Warren had to say earlier. Good morning, Warren. How are you? Good morning. I'm, I'm well, thank you, Mark. Um, I'm just uh, getting over the government announcements. So, uh, yeah, trying to take it all in. Hopefully we can be a little bit clearer what we cover today than they were. <laughs> so we've actually had some questions in this week, um, which is good because that's what we want from everybody. If you want to ask Warren a question, because he'll be back in a fortnight's time for the next podcast, just use the hashtag FSM podcast. But as I said, we've had some questions in already, Warren. So hopefully you're all right for me to fire away at you. So the, the question we've had coming in from BAFE is... Um, They'd like to hear your thoughts on third-party certification as a statutory defence. Can you give us an insight into that, please, Warren? Yeah, well, the, there's only really one defence in the fire safety order, and that's due diligence. And due diligence is that you took all reasonable precautions uh, that any reasonable person would do to to, to avoid the commission of an offence under the order. So um, it doesn't mention third-party third certification, and I can't see any situation that where third-party certification would not help. Of course it would. Um, It would go some way towards showing due diligence, but I don't necessarily think that it's um, fatal to any prosecution. So 
where this would apply most is where you've got perhaps a fire risk assessor arguing with a fire safety officer as to what is appropriate as a strategy or as a fire risk assessment, what is suitable and sufficient. Clearly, if the fire risk assessor has got a, a third party certificate saying, you know, is it accredited fire risk assessor and that's recognised in some way by the government, then when the judge comes to decide whose evidence he prefers, then that can level the playing field as far as the fire risk assessor and the fire safety offer is concerned. My experience is that courts like officers in uniform, they tend to back them because it, it, if they didn't, then they would be diluting their powers and undermining confidence in them. But certainly third party accreditation would go some way to leveling the playing field in that regard. So a follow up question from Bayfon, they've said, um, does Warren believe that the government fire safety guidance documents that are available run in parallel and in weight with the HSE guidance on this topic? I don't know if you're familiar with that, Warren, or not. I'm not over familiar with the health and safety guidance, but certainly the fire safety guidance documents are just that. My first ever case was a case where an enforcement notice had been issued to a hotel owner and the hotel owner was required to do certain things in accordance with the guidance. And the, the hotelier argued that the, the guidance was just that. It wasn't law, so he wasn't bound by it. Um, the judge found that he was bound by the enforcement notice and actually said, well, this is guidance. You're quite right. If you're not going to follow the guidance, you're going to have to show that you have achieved the goals that the guidance achieves in some other way. Um, and in that case, he found that he hadn't. So it is guidance. But what's important is achieving um, the safety measures that the fire officers uh, want you to achieve. So the guidance in this area is is fairly um, specific, but it, the idea of the order is is that it's non-prescriptive. So um, the guidance goes some way. Uh, the courts will expect you to achieve the same goals that the guidance wants you to achieve if you don't follow the guidance in getting there. So final question for today, Warren. As you'll know very well, the Fire Safety Bill is about to go under its second reading. Do you think um, there needs to be any additional guidance that could go alongside the Fire Safety Bill? I think... Certainly, the, any new provisions under the bill would require guidance, which which isn't in existence at the present time. But I also think the present guidance needs to be updated. Many of the guidance documents haven't been updated um, for over 15 years. Um, the guidance document that went with the order has not been updated. And the document that perhaps is, is one of the most useful documents is the collected and received insights into the order which was done every three years. And the last time that that was done, I think was 2015. So that's becoming a, a bit dated as well. The criticism I have of that document, whilst accepting that it's an excellent document, is that it doesn't really deal with the uh, practical legal consequences of um, enforcing the order and the articles. And I think that's something that the new guidance might include. It was written by a fire safety expert in an excellent way. Um, but what it lacks as far as interpretation is concerned, interpretation of the order, is that it doesn't make any reference to what the courts have found and how they've treated various parts of the order. And, and also, you know, th there are things that can be expanded upon now, uh, which are a bit clearer than perhaps they were, say, five, ten years ago. So my view is that um, extra guidance would be uh, beneficial. There are certain areas of the order which, if they are not 
repealed, then they, the guidance should make, should make the order that, as it is now and much clearer so that people have that clarity that you require when you're spending money on in enforcement measures, etc. Well, Warren, thanks for answering the questions from our audience today. Uh, obviously, you'll be back in a couple of weeks for the next episode. But in the meantime, if someone wants to get in touch with you or, or your practice, how can they get in touch? Um, as always, I'm, I'm available on LinkedIn. Um, Blackhurstbud.co.uk is our uh, firm's website. And there's the, the info at firesafetylaw.co.uk, my um, fire safety website. And if you want to ask your questions on the next edition of the FSM podcast to Warren, just go on either LinkedIn or Twitter using the hashtag FSM podcast. Thanks, Warren. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Mark. Bye. As always, a really interesting insight by Warren. No one's more knowledgeable than him in terms of prosecutions under the fire safety order. But that leads us into our next set of news, and it feels like a perfect segue, actually. So, Brian, you covered this. The fire safety bill has had its second reading in the House of Commons. If you haven't read this story, as I said before, you can read the story online on fsmatters.com. So the fire safety bill has had a successful second reading in the House of Commons, during which time... James Brokenshire, who's the Minister of State for the Home Office, focused on the tragedy, which was a Grenfell fire, and stressed that the government is resolute in its commitment to ensure that these events are never repeated. So for those of you that haven't heard our past podcasts and seen online our coverage of this, the Fire Safety Bill is a clarification of the Fire Safety Order. James Brokenshire said it will apply to all multi-occupied residential buildings regulated by the Fire Safety Order. The current ambiguity is leading to inconsistency in the operational practice. This is unhelpful at best, and at worst, it means that the full identification and management of fire safety risks is compromised, which can, of course, put lives at risk. Brokenshire went on to say, I'm well aware that the provisions of this bill will require potentially significant numbers of responsible persons to review and update their fire risk assessments. For many... That will require specialist knowledge and expertise of a fire risk assessor. We are working representatives of the sector to understand the particular challenges in delivery. Again, something we're covering in detail, Brian. It's not going to go away. Warren covered it, what it means for the fire safety order. And of course, Stephen Adams has had input from this as well. So it's an important topic that we keep reviewing, but it's interesting. It's already at its second reading, Brian. It is indeed, Mark, and it's a neat segue what you've been saying into my second news story uh, for this week. And all practitioners, as you've been saying, involved in fire safety agree there's an overriding need to share information and create new solutions going forward. With this in mind, uh, Fire Safe Europe has built the digital space to do just that with the European fire safety community. This essentially is an all new open to all Fire Safe Europe membership. Uh, it's an online space, enables fire safety stakeholders to connect, pool knowledge and look to improve fire safety in buildings. Apparently 240 plus practitioners have already joined the movement. Having done so, what are they getting for that? Well, they're benefiting from exclusive interviews with policymakers and fire safety experts. They're benefiting from key intelligence on legislation initiated on fire safety at the EU level. And also interactive uh, podcasts, funnily enough, and webinars on uh, central fire safety issues. There are three uh, key focus areas for the group. Um, data collection, uh, facades, fire safety, and also sustainable buildings. 
In terms of the first one, data collection, there's a dedicated advisory panel that's analysing what already exists on fire safety data collection. Uh, they're fostering the exchange of best practice and also aiming to support the Euro European Commission's desire for pan-European fire safety efforts. Um, on the second of those points, facades fire safety, uh, the benefits of practitioners being involved with the advisory panel on this subject include being privy to com uh, comparisons on regulations and standards, as well as regular updates on the European Commission's work focused squarely on approaches towards the assessment uh, of fire performance of facades. And lastly, but not least, um, uh, sustainable buildings. When it comes to that, amid the EU Green Deal, the European fire safety community intends to reinforce building sustainability by inserting into the sustainability debate an element that has been omitted so far, which is uh, that of fire resilience, a very important one. Uh, readers uh, and viewers of the podcast who want more detail on this can access the website. It's uh, eufiresafety, all one word, dot community. Yeah, Brian, you know, quite a big theme of the news in this episode of the podcast has been on regulation, has been on passive fire protection facades. And this this is obviously key, all links back to um, movement since the Grenfell Tower tragedy. Yes, of course, Brexit has happened and we are leaving the European Union and we're in a transitional phase right now. But I don't think anyone would deny what we can't afford to happen is standards to slip in those areas. And this is an this is an important initiative, again, to make sure there is some continuity during this period of time and change. So, yeah, I would encourage everyone to go there because we we may be leaving the European Union, but we want to do the best that we possibly can do to make sure that our standards don't slip. So, yeah, re really newsworthy, Brian. interviewee on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Stephen Adams, the CEO of BAFE. Earlier this week I chatted with Stephen about the organisation's Don't Just Specify Verify campaign, the enforcement of fire safety legislation and the impact of COVID-19. Stephen, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, we mentioned BAFE's latest campaign, Don't Just Specify Verify, in the first episode of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Would you like to expand on that for the detail behind the campaign? Uh, yes, indeed. Morning, Brian. It's uh, a pleasure to be talking to you. Pleasure to be talking to anybody, to be honest. Certainly, the Don't Just Specify Verify campaign grew out of the fact that the uh, third-party certification has got a much wider audience. Uh, we worked very hard over many years to get particularly specifiers and end users to understand the importance of third party certification as a measure of competence for companies uh, who are providing services for them. But we also wanted to be sure that they recognise that uh, the fire industry isn't about one particular skill, it's a whole range of skills. And the BAFE schemes uh, cover a wide range of competencies. So what we wanted to be sure was that with the best intentions, when a provider specifies third-party certification in their tenders and in their requirements, that they then <clears throat> go on to find out and ensure that the companies who are tendering for the work actually meet the standards for the particular type of work. So you don't want a company who is highly competent in maintaining extinguishers 
uh, installing your fire alarms. Many companies have both competencies, but you want to be sure that they have them. Exactly in the same way that GasSafe do, if you ask your GasSafe engineer who comes to service your domestic boiler, he will show you what other competencies he has and thereby what competence he doesn't have. So that verification stage is commonly overlooked and it's important that when procurement companies or the responsible person are awarding contracts, they check that their contractors are appropriately certificated for the work required. And we monitor all public sector tenders for in our areas of interest and we're constantly reminding them and advising them about the range of competences and the range of uh, certificated schemes that are available. And we're doing this for the whole industry. It's not solely about BAFE. It's about all third-party certificated competences across the whole fire industry. Companies need to check that their providers are properly certificated in the areas that they're looking for. So that's the basis of the campaign, and it's it's uh, had a lot of interest. Yeah, it's a great campaign, Stephen. Late last month in, in Parliament, you may have noticed James Brokenshire, who's, of course, the Minister of State of the Home Office, he said, and I quote, the provisions of the Fire Safety Bill will require potentially significant numbers of responsible persons to review and update their fire risk assessments. For many, that will require specialist knowledge and the expertise of the fire risk assessor. What are your thoughts on this, Stephen, and how does BAFE fit in with this particular area of fire safety? Well, we've been seeking for a long time some clear and consistent messages coming out. And everything starts with the fire risk assessment. It's the one area of fire protection that there is some form of obligation under the regulatory reform order and the equivalents in Scotland and Northern Ireland. But still, you, me, my milkman, if I had one, could go out and do a fire risk assessment. There is no requirement for competence. And whilst it's it's entirely appropriate that in very small premises that the owner with some suitable, possibly online training, can do their own assessment, the moment you get into any form of commercial or complex or residential building, the key is that whoever does the fire risk assessment is competent. And we're working very hard with the uh, Grenfell Hackett Working Group on Fire Risk Assessment and with other professional bodies, trade bodies, to promote the value of competence in this. It, it's it's fine, and I was pleased that, that the minister mentioned that fire risk assessments, A, need to be updated, and the need for specialist knowledge, but they're still falling short of saying uh, that a competent person needs to do that. And if you Google search for fire risk assessors, you'll find all sorts out there charging ridiculous prices, which certainly mean they can't be doing a detailed study of the premises and providing a competent report. So we're very much involved in this. We secretariat the the Hackett Group on Fire Risk Assessment and work with the likes of the Fire Sector Federation and the trade associations um, constantly to promote it. We have a scheme for fire risk assessor uh, assessment providers, SP2, SP205, and there's 112 companies registered to that scheme. And we are keen that the competence is the thing that is maintained. And one of the key measures of competence, let's not forget, 
is knowing what you can't do. There will be many very highly skilled fire risk assessors who are extremely good, let's say, at hotels or commercial premises, who recognise that their skills don't also cover petroleum installations, nuclear power stations, high-risk residential buildings. So that's also part of competence. Um, And we're very keen that government right across the UK begins to recognise that they have to say what the requirements for competence are. The Fire and Rescue Services are doing quite a lot of work, um, but it's costly and it's time-consuming to actually prosecute both end-users and incompetent fire risk assessors um, if they're not in place. Um, but we, we totally agree with what John O'Neill, who's the chief executive of the FPA and, and very much involved in the Fire Sector Federation, where he called for mandating third-party certification. Um, and Ian Moore from the FIA has, has said very much the same thing, as have other trade associations, calling for a mandatory requirement for third-party certificated competence at the appropriate level. And that will come in, we hope, as part of the the Hackett-Grenfell inquiry report that there will be appropriate levels for the higher risk, for the general commercial areas. We're we're working very hard to encourage that. And and again, sorry, just to to wind up on this, the Fire Sector Federation, um, and it's been widely published, got guidance from a very well-informed barrister about the statutory defence, which means that if a an end user, if the responsible person makes sure that they are using a competent provider for their fire risk assessment and for their other fire protection services, that that will, in the sad event of a fire, will mean that they can be shown to have done everything within their power to carry out proper due diligence, that everything has been done competently. So there's lots of avenues to this, there's lots of um, routes that we're going through to try and encourage, um, but we have to be looking to government. I just noted this morning that they're looking at getting the, the Grenfell review up and running again in some form or another, but they've got to be coming out and, and not just having wise words about competence and specialist knowledge, but actually doing something about it. Well, Bay's own portfolio of competency schemes, Stephen, of course, has grown in the last couple of years. Could you outline the newer schemes that the industry should take note of and for which they ought to strongly consider achieving third-party certification, in your view? Yes, and we, we, we try and both refresh our existing schemes all the time with, with monitoring groups um, and also where the industry demands it that we have new schemes. We always say there's a a three-legged stool for this. One, that there are proper standards, British European standards, um, that there is demand for uh, compliance and competence, and that we have a means of delivering it because all of our schemes are delivered through UCAS accredited certification bodies, and we work very hard with them and we're very appreciative of all of their efforts because they have to train assessors and they have to go through the UCAS route. Um, but we uh, we introduced a commercial kitchen fire protection scheme last year, SP206, which was very much encouraged by the insurance industry because um, 
they have had uh, uh, many losses in commercial kitchens. So both insurance industry and the manufacturers were keen that we did something. And I would say as we come out of lockdown, whenever that is, there will be many commercial kitchens, whether standalone or in shopping centres or in commercial premises, and they will need some serious looking at if they haven't been working for the last six or eight weeks to make sure that, that they are safe. But So this was a first of its kind. It, it encouraged companies who have kitchen fire suppression systems that they're properly installed, they're properly maintained, and um, that, uh, that they work. So we, we, we did that. And the, the second one that we've introduced even more recently was for the service and maintenance of uh, dry and wet risers and uh, SP2, SP105. That's very recent. A lot of our current portable extinguisher registered companies do wet and dry riser work. And uh, it, it, in looking at the standards, British standards and BS 5041, we, we felt and there was a demand for some proper notes of compliance with that scheme. One of the things that we have found in respect of that is that there is an absence of proper formal training for competence. A number of companies do it themselves. Um, one of the trade associations, IFEDA, certainly do a training package, but that's something that we would be looking for the industry to uh, to take up because um, it is a growing requirement. And if we're looking at the competence of the people who do the work, then we want to be sure that they can find the right sort of training. We've, we've added to our emergency lighting scheme and made sure that that is current and up to date. There have been some recent changes to the British standards. Um, but as I say, um, all of our schemes get a, a regular update and are monitored constantly to make sure they, they meet both the current standards and industry best practice. So we, you know, we feel this is going to be vital as companies come out of lockdown, that um, everything that they're doing has been rechecked to make sure that uh, things are working properly and um, meeting the standards that they require. Moving on to legislation now, Stephen, do you feel that enough's being done in respect of enforcement when it comes to fire safety legislation at present? And what do you believe could be done to support the fire and rescue services still further, perhaps? Well, I've mentioned already that the, the fire and rescue service as the enforcing body has taken through a number of prosecutions and, and they're to be commended on that because uh, they are costly, they are time consuming and um, both the uh, building owners and in some cases the service providers have been prosecuted and, and that's excellent. There's the Campanile Hotel in Fenny Stratford which was ordered to pay £220,000 and uh, th 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 there have been a number of those, that's one of the most recent. Um, we'd like the Fire and Rescue Service to perhaps recognise and promote using competent providers more. We recognise that they have a position as the enforcer where um, they you know, have to be careful of, of their position and they, they are generally at the uh, senior level supportive of us. Um, but I think they also would be looking to, to government guidance on this to ensure the, the, the compliance of contractors because sadly it's the Fire and Rescue Service that has to 
um, go in when things do go wrong, as we've seen so many examples. And so, we're, we're, you know, we are looking for the, the ministers and the Home Office, who now have responsibility for Fire and Rescue Service, um, to be much more clear and concise about what should be happening. And um, so, you know, we, we're, we're fully supportive of the Fire and Rescue Services. They, they do a superb job. Um, and they, they're sitting on a number of the Hackett working groups, so we come into contact with them. And, and I would say that um, UCAS as well have really put their head above the parapet to, to promote to the Fire and Rescue Services, to government and the, the major uh, construction trades, the value of certification and that the, uh, the, the industry, the fire industry, is an important part of the construction industry. Um, it's about the lifetime of any building. And as I say, sadly, the fire and rescue services are the ones who have to go in uh, when things go wrong. And that's always a chapter of accidents. It's rarely just one thing. And it's what Hackett described as the golden thread. And the fire element is a vital and important part of that golden thread. Indeed, so Steve, we would endorse your comments there, absolutely. Uh, to finish off with today's uh, meeting, Stephen, you've been keeping the industry very well informed about the pandemic via the BAFE website, and that's to your great credit. Is there anything you'd like to say now in relation to the coronavirus outbreak and the future roadmap for the industry in general? Well, it's been hard, and we felt that information was very useful and helpful to our registered companies, but anybody else who's... who's wanted to look and it, it's been well received. We we certainly recognise that that our companies and, and you know out of the seventeen hundred or so registered companies that BAFE has, there's every size from the, the significant major national and international companies um, down to very small companies with one or two technicians and we're grateful for their commitment to quality. Um, but you know times are very hard. And, um, you know, we know that many of our companies simply haven't been able to carry out any work at all because their clients are closed down, they can't get access to buildings and new installation work obviously isn't taking place. So, you know, we will try and, and support them through that. Um, and we recognise that as soon as things start to open up, they'll want to generate cash and get back to work. So we're, the next stage really is is promoting out to end users that they can't just buy their services at any price because there are new disasters down the, the way somewhere. They will happen and, you know, they, they have to recognise. And, and I think one of the key things as companies come out of lockdown is that they can ill afford to have a fire. If you're a major company or a small business that's been on lockdown for the last six weeks and you're now trying to get back, get a relationship back with your customers, a fire would be the last straw in many cases. So all I would say to them is please ensure that your fire safety processes and procedures are fully up to speed, have been properly maintained and and comply because again many companies will have had to move things around so the the fire risk assessment and the fire protection you have may be inadequate if you've moved things around in your building so please i would just say to 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 all of commercial industry um, fire is devastating 
as part of your uh, get back to work plans, make sure that um, your protection is adequate and that it works so that your staff, your building and your customers and your stock are protected um, so that, you know, when and as the lockdown begins to, we, we come out of it, um, that they will stay safe and that they can start picking up their business, which is what, uh, with what all of us want. We all want to get back to business. second interviewee on this Fire Safety Matters podcast is Mark Rivers. Mark is the key account manager at Detector Testers, the developer of heat and smoke detector solutions. Mark chatted with him about trends in the market and business growth during the pandemic. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Morning, Mark. I'm fine, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, great. Thanks for joining us. Um, we've had a number of questions come in, so if you're ready for me to grill you, should we get underway? Absolutely. Brilliant. Okay, so obvious first question for me is, how is business for detector testers at this time? Because obviously we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. How are things holding up for you guys? Well, we're managing social distancing really well on site. And of course, everyone who can is working from home. Our manufacturing team have continued to keep production open, meaning we're able to maintain supply across our range. We've had feedback from customers that maintenance is still happening. Many of our customers continue to work during this time, servicing and maintaining critical sites, including shops, hospitals and schools. Between us and our distribution partners, we've been able to continue to supply customers worldwide. So before the coronavirus pandemic, what trends were detector testers seeing in the fire safety market? Well, a few things stand out. Firstly, an increase in awareness and the use of multi-sensors. More of these devices are being installed, which has led to a rise in the uptake of Testifier. This is not unique to the UK, but we've seen a significant change in demand here, led by the update to BS5839. Secondly, we've noticed our customer base is changing. Whereas typically our customers would be fire engineers and service managers, greater awareness around responsibilities of testing has led to inquiries from facilities managers and building owners. A lot of this is fueled by compliance. Those people responsible now want to know more about systems that are installed and ultimately how they're maintained. The third trend is probably as a result for the need for greater compliance. We've seen an increased desire to ensure 100% testing, including testing of detectors in hard to access locations, which previously may have gone untested. As a result, we've seen recent installations of Scorpion in motor manufacturing plants, hospitals, and even the zoo. So you mentioned Testifier and Scorpion. For those of our listeners that aren't familiar with those products, can you tell us a bit more about them, please? Yeah, well, Testifier is a multi-criteria, multi-stimulus tester. So we can do smoke tests, heat tests, and even a carbon monoxide test all in one head. And we can do them sequentially or simultaneously. So it speeds up testing time under the head, makes it much, much faster. Scorpion is our remote test solution. So we actually mount a small smoke generator permanently next to the detector that we need to test. Bring a cable down, and have an access point and a controller somewhere more convenient, maybe near the fire panel. So once it's installed, we can do our testing from a much more convenient location than where the detector might be located, i.e. in a lift shaft or the top of a warehouse. 
I mean, the great thing about your products is when you see them at a show like the fire safety event, which obviously you're at again on September 22nd and 23rd this year is, you guys are great at demoing them on the stand, aren't you? You often have the products there on show, which I'm presuming you will do again in September. Yes, yeah, people like the to touch, feel, try the products out. They're the sort of tools that they'll be using day in, day out. So they want to just know how they how they feel. So obviously our, our readership of the magazine and this podcast listeners is, is quite diverse. You know, they're fire safety managers, they're consultants, they're uh, installers. They work across a range of sites and sectors. Because it's so broad and your product range can go across so many um, broad spectrums, are there any interesting case studies you can share in particular premises sites? Well, as you say, our products are universal. They work with any brand of detector. So a typical site for us is anywhere there's a fire detection system and installed and maintained in compliance with standards. So it's retail, manufacturing, offices, schools. They all need to be tested. Scorpion is quite application specific. So then we have a number of case studies on our website ranging from hospitals, universities, manufacturing plants, warehousing. And often, before specifying Scorpion or before installing it, a lot of customers will call us, maybe even to have a video session, to run through their plans, discuss siting, cabling, etc. Well, obviously, your products can work on retrofitted um, fire detection systems or, or new installations. So with that in mind, the fact that you can cover both areas, how are you keeping up with growth and demand of your products? Well, we're constantly working on new solutions and compliance is always at the heart of these. But it's also about choice now. We've developed specific solutions for particular applications, whether it's for the type of detector used, the location of where the detector is installed, or the person carrying out testing. In the last 18 months, we've introduced a number of kits suitable for urban use. So they're lighter kits with shorter poles and supplied in backpacks. We've also moved our training online to enable faster access to training without people needing to travel to us. Additionally, we can offer training and support by video call now. So, Mark, for anyone wanting to get in touch with you or Detect Test if they want to find out more about the products and, and the areas, obviously it's quite diverse where you can use your product range, how can people find out more and get in touch with you guys? The easiest place to go is straight onto our website, detectortesters.com. That gives you access to our email addresses, telephone numbers, and also links to LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. So, Mark, thanks for joining us today. Now, as we say to everybody, there were some good questions that came in this week. If you want to pose questions to our next guest, which will be um, advanced, and obviously they do MX Pro and various fire detection systems, they will be our guests in the next edition of the podcast. All you need to do, send your questions in either on Twitter or LinkedIn using the hashtag FSM podcast. But Mark, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting us. latest edition of the fire safety matters podcast you can read more on the issues raised and others by visiting the fire safety matters website at www.fsmatters.com we do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful on that note please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore in upcoming broadcasts you can do so on twitter by using the hashtag fsm podcast do make sure you follow us on twitter at fsmatters underscore mag as a reminder 
The Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. On the next podcast, there'll be an interview with Bob Doherty, Chairman of the Institute of Fire Safety Managers. And as always, we'll feature our regular legal review with Warren Spencer. We'll see you then. Music